But the Sermon on the Mount is basically, in a nutshell, it is the call for the attitudes and the values and the priorities that followers of Christ are to have. The Sermon on the Mount is more than just information. It is more than just teaching. It is more than a philosophy. But it is a way that God expects us to live. You remember last week we talked about the fact that there were two paths that Jesus taught. There's a narrow path that leads to life and the wide path that leads to destruction, and most people are on that. One of the great things that, that go through here is the fact that God wants to be in the center of our lives, not on the edges. You remember the, when the Beatitudes, the way we started, the Be Happy Attitudes and the key to happiness, and the first one that he talked about was being poor in spirit, which was simply a way of saying totally dependent on God. Not living for yourself, but living for Him and bringing fruit in our lives. We'll even look at that tonight about how Jesus said you're going to know the true from the false by the fruit that's in your life. It's not what you say, but it's what your life is producing. So anyway, uh, let's just jump right into this. Again, last week we, we learned about knowing people by their fruits. I'm, I'm sorry, about judging last week, what it meant, do not judge what it meant about uh, asking, seeking, and knocking in prayer, about persistence and the narrow way. Uh, let's look at tonight. You'll know them by their fruits. Jesus said, I never knew you. And that to me, that's one of the most profoundest uh, uh, passages in this Sermon on the Mount. Or, and lastly, building your life on the rock, and of course the rock in sinking sand. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, you'll know them by their fruits. He begins to say, beware. This word beware means be continually on your guard. Um, I have a lot of friends, and I believe in it, about being a concealed weapon carrier to defend yourself. Um, you may disagree with that, but I notice that people that uh, are, have, are, are prepared to defend themselves are watchful. And they're not a bunch of weirdos. They're just like a policeman. I have friends that are policemen. I know people that have served in, in uh, law enforcement, and they just look at life differently than most people. Most people go along and they don't, you know, they don't, they're not looking for predators. They're not looking for people that might be ready to rob the store. But a person that's sensitive to danger is looking out. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage when he says the word beware. And it's suggesting that you are to be continually on your guard. And what you're to beware of is false prophets. Some translations say false teachers. Now, mind you, these are not people that are coming from the outside, out in the world, or far away. They're people in the body of Christ, among the believers. They're people that are in your midst that could be a false prophet. Notice what it says. They come, and they come disguised as harmless sheep, but they're really what? Vicious wolves. It's the, the word vicious is the word ravenous. It means they're greedy. They are preying. If you have ever looked at a predator, like a wolf, for example, or, or uh, a coyote, uh, a bobcat, that thing is ready to pounce. It's looking for weakness. If you've seen the wildebeest on, you know, the, on National Geographic, I mean, you've got these lines that are couched, and they are preparing to attack their prey. And basically, Jesus said, uh, this is not a group of Pharisees now, but these are false Christian teachers and false prophets. One of the great themes in the New Testament is a warning against the false, excuse me, against the false teacher. There are dozens of references in many of the books and the teachings of the New Testament about warning believers about erring from the truth and following the false teacher or the false prophet. So Jesus said, watch out for them, for they don't look harmless, or they don't look like they're a wolf, but in actuality they are. And notice how Jesus said you can identify them. Jesus said you can identify them by their fruit. 
Not whether they have a good attitude, not whether they have a degree, not whether they have church experience, uh, not whether they have a big Bible, not whether they know Hebrew or Greek, not whether they know church history. Uh, it's whether their teaching is true or whether it's false. And Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. And this is an interesting word. That is, in the, in the New Living Translation says, by the way they act. And then he's going to make some contrast here. He says, can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Well, obviously not. A good tree is going to produce what? Good fruit, good fruit, of course, is fruit you can eat. It's fruit you can enjoy. It's like a good peach. It's an apple. It's a banana. It's a fruit medley. As contrasted to a bad tree produces bad fruit. Has anyone ever eaten a persimmon before it frosts? Whew. That's all I can say about that. If not, I'd love to turn you on to the experience. It would just draw your mouth. It just is the most terrible thing. Well, you, I doubt you could live on that even if you were starving to death. And what Jesus is basically saying is these people reveal themselves by the way that they act. And I'll say this over the years that uh, I have pastored. I have watched people in the church uh, slip out of the church with a new doctrine, with a new teaching, uh, starting churches, starting movements, you know, proclaiming themselves to be apostles. And it sounds pretty good. Some of the teaching, it sounds to be correct. And I found that time will reveal whether it's true or whether it's false. I have found if you look at that person's life and ask the question, what kind of fruit are they producing? Are they preaching to themselves in the mirror? Or are they literally changing lives? Are people being discipled? Are, are missions being conducted? Uh, is there holiness? Uh, is righteousness being pursued? Or is it some spurious doctrine that's coming forth? Um, Verse 2 says, every tree that does not produce good fruit, what happens to it? Chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, you can identify people by their actions. Now, this was not an isolated example in the New Testament. If you were to look at Acts chapter 20, it'll be on the screen. Listen to what Paul said to the Ephesian elders. Now we're leaping ahead probably 40, maybe 50 years into the future after Jesus spoke about this. And Paul is in the Gentile world. He's talking to the Ephesian elders in the church of Ephesus. Paul is basically saying, I'm about to leave. My, death, uh, my, my last journey is before me, the last time that I'm going to see you. And notice what he says to the elders of this church. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock by which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now look at verse 29. For I know, I'm certain that after I leave, what's he say? Savage wolves. There it is again. Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now that doesn't mean they're killing people. It simply means that they are they're undermining the foundation of these believers' lives. They're taking them down the wrong path and they're sending them down the wrong direction. Uh, from your own number, that is, from your own midst, from your church, from your group of believers there in Ephesus, men will arise, and what will they do? They'll distort it. It's like they're not, you know, how many of some false teaching is blatant? Cults that have been labeled false because, for example, a Mormon, a Jehovah Witness, that does not believe that Jesus is, is very God. They believe he's a lesser God. As Jesus was, you know, one day we'll be like him, the Mormons believe. Well, that's just blatantly false. But how many know sometimes they get just a little bit off? 
And if you're not careful, there are people that will pull you aside. Typically, they're charismatic type people. They have something, some charisma about them, some mystical type teaching, and they're pulling believers away after them. And the suggestion is they're not that the goal is just to, quote, keep people in the same assembly, but the goal is to stay grounded in truth, and the goal is to be producing fruit in your life. And that's what was opposite what was happening. Be on your guard. There it is. Beware. Remember, for three years, I never stopped warning you night and day with what? Tears. Now, why would he be so adamant about this if it were not for the fact that truth, that if it's distorted, can lead you in a ditch in your spiritual life? And I guarantee all of you in this room have seen that happen. Uh, now, notice in, in, in the illusion, verse 29, this tree that doesn't produce good fruit, it's chopped down and thrown into the fire. I believe every gumball tree and every pine tree should be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Everybody's head? You know, if you own any acreage, typically what you'll, you want to cut down when you cull your trees, which ones do you cut? You cut the ones that have died. You cut the ones that are diseased. You cut the ones that have, you know, maybe a big hole has been eaten out of or it's rotting on the inside, and you cut that tree out so the other trees can bear, bear fruit. Well, that's exactly what's happening. But the illusion here is to judgment. Again, this is a judgment day illusion, is these false teachers one day will be judged by God. But perhaps the most telling thing is in verse 20 is you can identify them by their fruit. And the word fruit means their action, their behavior, and their conduct. And one thing that I would encourage you, if you see someone that is perhaps, and I, I know we are certainly not a perfect church, and I know everything that I teach is not true. The only problem is I don't know what happens to be false. Okay? I mean, there's got to be something that's not 100%, but when we become aware of it, we try to make adjustments for it. But people that are veering aside. I look at their lives when they pull themselves apart. I mean, the Bible warns against pulling ourselves apart. And it's sad how many churches are started in America and in our town by church splits. But I have observed over the years, rarely does a church split work. And typically things that are birthed out of rebellion, things that are birthed out of wrong hearts and wrong attitudes are, uh, are not fitting for, they just, they just don't produce. They're not life-giving. I mean, if you start a church with a bunch of offended people, guess what you're going to have? That's exactly right. If they're bitter, if they're angry, uh, if they've taken offense, if they're last church, if they're mad at their last pastor, if they're mad at an elder, if they're mad at something, that becomes the defining mark of that new assembly. Well, I mean, no, that's not what church is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about reaching people for Christ, making disciples, living holy lives, and encouraging one another as we prepare to meet Christ. So Jesus warned that this was coming. Now, Second John chapter 1 um, this is one more example of even the way John exhorted people to treat this false teacher. Second John chapter 1, the NIV, you may take a peek at the screen. He's writing to the elder, the chosen lady and her children. This is a way of saying the local church and the believers that are in it. And I want you to see the word that he uses, the word truth. Whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. In verse 2, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. So truth is essential. It's the word doctrine, not the word, but it, it, it has to do with doctrine, the teaching of, of, of Christ, the teachings of the Bible. Verse 7, now here's someone, and the purpose of his letter was to warn them, uh, uh, warn them about a false teacher. I say this because many deceivers have gone out where? Into the world. So where did those deceivers come from? No, they came from the church. And deception arises. You know, you can, you can take an, a scripture in the Bible and you can take it off of its course where it's supposed to end up. 
I mean, people have gone into ditches in a lot of good things. Well, in my early Christian life, there was a discipleship movement in America that basically turned into control. They, were, they, they would become so controlled. Submission had become so distorted that they were telling people who they could marry, whether or not they could move or change jobs. And it started out as a very good thing to try to help people be covered spiritually, but before you know it, it had shifted into a place of error and deception, and there was a warning. And in this particular case, in verse 7, they denied that Jesus Christ came in a real body. They believed Jesus was some type of spirit being. They were deceiver and an antichrist. Watch out so you don't lose what you worked so hard to achieve. Now, what is that? Their pursuit of truth, the foundation that they've built, the, the, the foundation of their lives and the local assembly. Be diligent so you'll receive your full reward. Suggesting that deception and error can bring you off course and it can affect your eternity. You might not lose your salvation, but it certainly is affecting their reward. Notice verse 9. Anyone who wanders away from this teaching has no relationship with God. So somehow this error affected their relationship with God as they wandered away. Anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ has a relationship with both the Father and the Son. Now look at verse 10. This is very interesting. How I many of the Bible does tell us to love people, especially the brotherhood? But verse 10 says, if anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, what's it say? Don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. Now, wow, that is, that's a big deal. You know, I'm convinced, and this is a sad thing, but most people in the Christian church today follow a personality rather than following truth. You know, you can be a gifted person, a gifted teacher. You can have spiritual gifts that are at work in your life, but your character and your world can be whole, uh, totally out of sync. Well, anyway, that's the, first, uh, that's the first thing that Jesus taught us tonight is about knowing the truth from the false by their life, not what they say or not what they say about themselves or what the press releases say. Now, look at verse 21. This is the most, uh, um, I don't know, maybe eye-opening of the three passages tonight or, or startling. Verse 21, Jesus is saying this now. And he's not saying this to the world at large. He's saying this to professing followers of him. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does what? Now, this is interesting. Many of you will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons and done many wonders in your name? In verse 23, an amazing verse that I cannot fully get my grasp. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who do what? Now, in a nutshell, basically, there, you can have supernatural ministry and activity in your life, but not have a real relationship with Christ. I don't see how it can happen, but it's happening. And the root of the thing here was obedience. The root of the thing was they were not doing the will of the Father. I don't know if it was human ambition. I don't know what it was that was causing these people. How I many know you can, you can, the same ambition that makes you want to have the, you know, be the winning baseball player, be the biggest company, have the biggest this or biggest that, that same ambition can come into the church, come on, and you can do things for Christ and in the name of Christ and not even know Him. 
It's a pretty startling scripture. How in the world could anyone that didn't have relationship with Christ do these miraculous things? I pray every day that I would be able to have an accurate prophetic word. And this word prophecy is not a, 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 a predicting the future, but it means proclaiming divine revelation. Every one of you know when you hear a genuine prophetic word from God, how it just sparks something in your spirit. And if you've been around someone that had a profound prophetic gift, you know what it does. It is life-giving. It is, it is, it is life, potentially life-changing. These people were doing it. They were doing miracles. That word, it's a word that has to do with power, many wonders in your name. It's the gift of miracles. It's the working of miracles. They're casting out demons. There's manifestations of some kind more than likely. But in the midst of all of that, what they were doing was not evidence to the fact that God was pleased with them. And the root, you're pretty quiet on me here, the root of it was the fact that they, their relationship with God, the whole key to understanding this is verse 23, when Jesus said, I never... We have to always, as you develop a theology or an understanding of the Bible, it's interesting what door you might enter into the Bible, consciously or unconsciously. And when I say what door you might enter into, most people when they're saved, they come to Christ because they're in trouble, because they're hurting, because there's some pain, because they're, you know, things are messed up. And they come to Christ because of a felt need. Their sins are weighing heavy. They need forgiveness. And if the door in which you come into the Bible is just what God can do for me, your whole Christian life and your relationship with God is about what God can do for me. I believe the entrance to the Bible and the, and the central pivotal scripture is what Jesus said was the great commandment that you are to love the Lord with all your soul and all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you have relationship with Christ. And the works of Christ can never be the substitute for the relationship with Christ. Now, another huge, huge uh, key to understanding this passage is it's not just those who are professing the Lord, Lord, Lord. It's not just those who are, who are uh, outwardly saying and even perhaps demonstrating their allegiance to Christ, but it's those who do the will of the Father. Now, Jesus is not advocating a works-based salvation, but what he's simply saying is those that are truly in relationship with me the indicator will be the fact that they're walking in obedience. See, and that's, again, by their fruit you'll know them, by the lifestyle that you're living. And this is not the first time Jesus has said this. He alludes to this multiple times. This idea of a God-centered focus of our whole life is what gives evidence to the fact that we're truly Christians. Now, what was in the Lord's Prayer, what was the focus of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father which art in heaven... So it contextualizes us and our relationship to God. He's independent. I'm de dependent. He is holy. I endeavor to set myself apart to his standards. Hallowed be your name. And what's the first petition? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing about me, but it's, it's like Christ is at the center of the universe. It's like Christ is the sun in our universe. And we as the earth or the moon or Jupiter or Pluto or Saturn, we revolve around him. But what's the illusion? The sun comes up in the east, and it sets in the west. And it doesn't feel like we're moving, so it's like that sun is there for us. When in actuality, just the opposite of true, we are moving around the sun. And, it, and, and the reason it's colder in the winter is because of the distance we are from the sun, the angle, and all those kind of things you know, that the astronomer has told us. But if, if you're sitting here on planet Earth, you think it's all about you. And this passage is saying, you, it's not about the Earth. It's about the revolution of the earth around the sun. And that's what Jesus is saying. And that's why relationship with God is so important. 
And that's why it's the heart of it. That's why we very deliberately in our church, in our prayer times and ministry, virtually every service will say, Lord, we surrender our lives to you. We want your will to be done in our life. We want to love you more. It's not just words, but he is the son, and we want to revolve around him. But to me, this is a very, very startling scripture. Uh, another way of saying I never knew you uh, was that you're complete strangers to me. Uh, one translation says, you were not my people. You were not my followers. That's why in Sunday mornings I've been trying to make a distinction between following Christ as Savior and following Him as... And somehow American Christianity has presented an option that you can believe to go to heaven, but only the serious people really follow Him as Lord. Jesus never offered that. It was, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one to deliver me. The Lord is the Master, and that's what Christ offered us. That's why when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, what are you supposed to do? Deny yourself, take up your, yeah, and follow me. So the orbit of our life is around him. We lose our life, and we find it. Remember when Jesus said, if you want to find life, what do you do? You lose it, but if you, want to find, oh, if you lose your life, what are you going to do? Then you'll find it. That's exactly the same vein of, of what, we're talking, what we're talking about here. Our relationship with Jesus is seen as established in our readiness to do the will of the Father. And basically, the will of the Father is the teachings of Jesus. You remember as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, multiple times Jesus would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, he who has anger in his heart against his brother, you know, is guilty of judgment. You've heard it said, quoting again, Ten Commandments, I shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks with a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery already. So it's like Jesus is saying, my teachings are the one you're to follow. My teachings are truth. My teachings are absolute. And obedience to my teachings opens the, and relationship with the Father opens the, the, the way to, to heaven for you. Now this last word is, before we move on, I, uh, I never knew you, you who practice what? Now, what is lawlessness? Yeah, lawlessness is, that's, that's a good way to look at it. It's complete rebellion. It's doing my own thing rather than God's. And if you want a depiction of the world in which we live today, we live in a lawless society. We live in a society that does everything it can to fight against God and His ways. You know, just the very idea that we, won't, we would not want, and a judge has even said this, that the Ten Commandments cannot be on the wall of a school lest a child should read them and obey them. We rather than thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, we would rather have metal detectors and a police force on the school campus. It's just an antichrist spirit in our world. It is a spirit of lawlessness that is a rebellion and a rejection against the, uh, against the, the, the teachings of Christ and, and, and of God. All right, let's close and wrap up here the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, verse 24. Everyone who hears my words and obeys them. Now, basically what Jesus is saying here is this is a summary statement. It's like the whole Sermon on the Mount is now brought together in this, and it's two pathways. Remember, Jesus has already said there's a narrow path that leads to what? life, and a wide path that leads to destruction. And now he's going to say it a different way. He's going, to, he's going to liken the foundation of our lives, how we build our life, and what's going to happen when storms come. Uh, it's like the Sermon on the Mount is concluding with a promise and a warning. So if you build your life right, right foundation, as we'll see, then you'll stand. But if you build it wrong, guess what's going to happen? 
It's going to collapse. So once again, a picture of judgment. All right? Uh, let's look at it. Everyone who hears my words and obeys them, here's the word obedience again. Now, that theme of obedience runs throughout the, uh, the, the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. He's like a wise man who built his house on the what? Yeah, I think probably that's where they got the, the name Church on the Rock years ago. Built his house on the rock. It has to do with foundation. It rained hard. The floods came. The winds blew and hit that house. But what happened? Did not fall because it was built on the rock. So this is the way that you are building your life. It's the way that you're teaching your children. It's the way that you're endeavoring to function, to build your business. So whatever you do, you're building on this right foundation. Because one day there's a storm coming, and once again, this storm is a picture of judgment that is ahead, and the judgment will hit the house. Verse 26, everyone who hears my words and does not obey them. It's amazing how obedience has become optional in much of Christianity. You know, much of Christianity, I think the big thing that's, that, that's coming to a head in American Christianity, it's like... Um, as the world becomes more adamantly against Christ and the church. And, and I mean, the world is not opposing any religious person. The world doesn't mind. Listen, they don't mind people, churches that are um, ordaining lesbians as their bishop. Uh, they don't mind churches that, uh, 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 you know, don't rock the boat when it comes to any social or cultural issues. They don't mind churches that go along. But the churches they mind are the churches and the believers that are saying, this is wrong. What you're saying is not right, and I cannot go along with it. Whether it's a matter of conscience, like a pharmacist being forced to distribute RU486, the morning after pill. No, this is wrong because I'm a Christian, and as a Christian, I espouse the protection of life in all of its stages. Well, guess what? There is, there is a resistance to the truth. And I believe that what's going to define the church in the days ahead is not whether you're a, a Baptist or a Methodist or an Assembly of God or a Presbyterian or a, a Catholic or, you know, the traditional, you know, Christian, Christian religions. Uh, I believe it's going to be, do you believe the Bible is the literal Word of God and do you believe Jesus is the only means to salvation? Now, we may, may disagree on some things like, do you speak in tongues? Do you do infant baptism? You know, there's a, a number of things that may not be the core things, but the core belief is, is the Bible the central word of God? You're going to see it sooner or later. The hate crimes legislation that our Senate passed and our president gleefully signed several months ago, sooner or later a case is going to bite somebody, and sooner or later it's going to hit. You know, I believe it could well be in America. And in the fall elections, how many know this is not just about politics? This is more than Democrats and Republicans, but the whole Tea Party movement in this sense, I don't even believe most people have a, a grasp of it that are shallow spiritually in the world. But it's an understanding of righteousness. It's an understanding of a nation that was built on God. It's an understanding of the motivation that caused people a number of decades ago to put on our money in God we... That when they, the Pledge of Allegiance was written, one nation... It is that spirit that is missing in America today that has the world, even the shallow religious person troubled and they can't put their finger on it but that's the deal and people are coming to realize that this Bible it's either true or it's false and whether it's a judge standing up and saying the national day of prayer is unconstitutional when the men who wrote the Constitution were deeply committed to prayer we had a picture I don't know what happened to it but it used to be on our wall of the first Continental Congress and guess what they're doing they're all on their knees and they are praying 
See, the problem is not that people don't know that that happened years ago. The revisionist historian basically said that doesn't matter because that's not the America we want to have today, and we're in charge and we're in power. See, when judges are appointed, uh, our President Obama is going to appoint a new Supreme Court justice. Will he support a, just, uh, will he support a justice that believes that the Constitution is, is binding or that you know, it can evolve and change as we go on? It's kind of more of a fluid document. Well, that's the world we live in today. But for us, being grounded in the Bible, that is, in my opinion, the defining issue as we go forwards in America. Do you believe the Bible is the literal Word of God? Do you believe in absolute truth or do you not? And what I just said, I believe, kind of summarizes this idea of building your life on the rock. Sooner or later, the winds will come and the floods will blow. Now, we've been able to avoid a whole lot of it in America because we've borrowed so much money and we're printing so much money. But I want to tell you what, it is just a zillion different ways about how the whole thing could come falling down as a house of cards. See, and we built it on the arrogance of man, and our nation could have that same experience. Verse 26, if you hear my words and don't obey them, you're a foolish person, and you build your house on the sand. In verse 27, it rained hard. It didn't say it might rain, but one day it's going to rain hard. Again, this is a picture of judgment. The floods came and the winds blew and hit that house, and it fell with a big crash. And you know, here's the deal. You can't tell what kind of foundation you have until the wind blows. You can't tell what kind of foundation you have until the storm comes. Those beautiful houses in California that, fly, that slide down the hill in the rains, you can't tell it when the architect designed it or when they built it or all these houses that they have built in the San Francisco Bay Area where they just, because they didn't have property, they just, you know, put landfill in there. Well, guess what? An earthquake comes and just all turns to mush because there's no real foundation. See? And that's what's going to happen one day. And we see it in the natural. Well, that's the same thing Jesus said spiritually. Trouble is coming, judgment is coming, but if your life is built on Christ, you will stand. And the rock is the teachings of Christ. Here is contained in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, more broadly in all his teachings. But in that day, he was saying, basically, if you build your life on these teachings that I just gave you, these three chapters as recorded in Matthew, your life will stand. And the anthem to the, to the, to the great uh, Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished these sayings, the people were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he did not teach like their teachers of the law, the Pharisees. He taught like a person who had authority. So he differed from the religious people of their day. And God confirmed the words that he taught with signs and wonders following. Praise the Lord. Well, my prayer for you as we close today, and I'll close with actually a scripture we're all familiar with. It's in the book of James, James 1.22. As you think of that, that, that trail of obedience that followed through the Sermon on the Mount. James 1.22 says, Don't just listen to God's Word. What's it say? Do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. If you listen to the Word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into this perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you heard, God will bless you for doing it. Well, Lord, that's my prayer today for myself first and for all my friends today that we indeed would be people who endeavor to live by the Word of God. Would you help our lives be fruitful? Would you help us, as we read tonight, be discerning against people who are deceivers, people who are fraudulent? Help us to have the ability not just to hear their words, but to see the fruit of their life. God, would you today never let us be guilty of having 
mighty works in our life, miracles, de demonic deliverance, uh, prophesying, but yet be indicted because we did not know you. Please, Lord, help us know you more and more as we go. And, Lord, as we close and look at our life, how we rebuild our lives, let it, the foundation of our world, the foundation of our children and those around us be built on the rock. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name.